It's November 11th, 1430, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. At the age of 24, Alice Chaucer, the granddaughter of the poet Geoffrey Chaucer of the Canterbury Tales fame, had spent two years living the high life of a Middle Ages singleton, which I must say I'm not exactly sure what that would have entailed. I'm guessing, I don't know, loads of feasts and loot playing and getting smashed on mead or something. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, it was on this day that she was granted license to marry her third husband and came to be a woman who was uh, defined by these three powerful marriages. She'd first been married at the age of 11, which was a practice pretty common among the elites at the time, to Sir John Phillip, who was in his early 30s. But it's not really clear if they ever spent much time together, because less than a year after the marriage, he died of dysentery in France, serving alongside Henry V in the Hundred Years' War. Except it's not called dysentery, is it, in historical accounts? It's called the flux. I know. Which fluxed me. I was like, what's a flux? What the flux? Yeah, I looked it up. I was like, what what is that? And it turns out it's just dysentery, but a very, you know... Just another horrible oldie-worldie thing that killed Yeah, a really nasty way to die. And then just a few years later, in her late teens, she was married to Thomas Montague, the fourth Earl of Salisbury. However, after a few years, he also died in the Hundred Years' War, which is how you know a war's been going on way too long (laughs) when you've lost multiple husbands to it. And the important thing about both of these guys dying in Alice Chaucer's life, I mean, apart from obviously the fact that she became a widow, which I'm sure was not great for her, but it kind of was great for her bank balance. And that was thanks to what at the time was called a jointure, a jointure was a marriage contract that permitted a widow to accumulate wealth. Yeah. So when your husband died, you got to keep what was left behind. That hadn't existed until the 1400s, but Alice Chaucer was able to benefit from it. Not that being a woman in the Middle Ages was a riot, being married at the age of 11, but this is something that she could benefit from. When her husbands popped their clogs, she got to keep their money and she'd married pretty well both times. And it's interesting to look back on the things that she did get from each husband. So from Sir John Philip, she got uh, some land, good, a gold cup and a room with all its furniture in his house. I was like, that's a weird kind of, okay, well, this is my room. Everyone stay out of my room. (laughs) But then from her second marriage to the Earl of Salisbury, this is where it starts to get serious. She got the revenues of his lands in Normandy, as well as a thousand marks in gold, which was about 660 pounds, which was a very significant sum when you consider that the average labourer was being paid about two pounds a year. And she'd also received land from her father, who was Thomas Chaucer, who was the son of Geoffrey Chaucer of Canterbury Tales fame. Uh, Thomas was a parliamentarian. He basically spent his whole life in the House of Commons. Yeah, he'd been Speaker, hadn't he, at one point? Mm. Yeah, and he held lots of ceremonial royal offices as well. And the family, although they were technically commoners, just because they, you know, they didn't belong to the aristocracy, they had plenty of money. And so she was, by the time she was ready for marriage number three to William de la Pole, she had quite a lot more money than he did. Because even though he'd been made a duke, he didn't have a lot of personal money behind him. So she came into the marriage a lot more well-off than he was. So this date that we're commemorating today is the day that she had a royal licence for her marriage. I'm trying to understand why that was necessary. Was it because she'd had two former husbands? Because if you sort of Google around what you needed to do to be married in the Middle Ages, you didn't even need a priest there. You didn't even need a piece of paper. It could be consummated by sex. It could Mm. be a a ceremony that happened at the door of a church. Um, And if you were Christian, you could have a legally binding marriage in England just by basically saying, right, we're wed and we'll give each other a gift. It didn't even have to be a ring. So... 
if the laws were that lax then, I appreciate proving it is a slightly different matter. Why did you need a royal marriage license? I think that's a really interesting question. And I wonder whether it's because of her status, which was, you know, elevating with each uh, wedding and also the, mm. the people that she was marrying were also kind of known to the royal court, if not mates of the king themselves. So, uh, you know, th- we're very close to the core of power. And I wonder whether that made this uh, third match the interest of the people who were at the top of the tree. Well, did people start to gossip at this point as well? Like, oh, she's on husband number three. (laughs) They must have done. I don't think it was that uncommon then. I just think there were so many people just dropping dead everywhere all the time. And there wasn't really that much. I mean, it was a bit different for Alice because she had so much money. But the average woman that was unable to, you know, work in a lucrative profession, it would have been quite difficult to remain unmarried. So it wasn't Mm. wasn't uncommon for someone to lose their spouse and remarry within a year or even a few months. But it's a slightly awkward thing that because Geoffrey Chaucer wrote The Wife of Bath, which is about a woman who has numerous (laughs) husbands and benefits from their death, that just the irony there meant people would always be pointing that out. I wonder if that was part of it. And the character is called Alice, admittedly spelt differently to <laughs> Alice Chaucer. Look, they didn't have many names in those days. <laughs> but anyway, her third husband, William Delapole, the Earl of Suffolk, was actually a really good friend of Henry VI, who was by now on the throne. He was also a friend, by the way, of a previous husband. And took over his command as well as his wife. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a bit intense. Talk about moving yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> Moved into her one room. Uh, <laughs> but he had an enormous amount of influence over Henry VI, so much so that his advice on who Henry VI should marry came to be the advice that he followed. And he ended up marrying Margaret of Anjou, the daughter of the King of Naples. And Alice then became really good pals with her, which was one of the things that put her in line for the most noble order of the garter, which she then received from the king, which was very unusual for women to get this. It was meant to be a kind of title for knights, but she was granted it, and it was an enormous step up the uh, the sort of hierarchy of nobility. And she wasn't just good friends with Margaret of Anjou. She actually stood in for her at one point when she fell ill on the sort of ceremonial parade from France back to England. Alice had gone out there with her husband William to escort Margaret of Anjou and she was about to make her ceremonial entry into the city of Rouen one of the stops along the way and she fell ill and so Alice I don't know whether she volunteered herself or whether she was volunteered put on all the royal clothes and jewellery and sort of stood in played the part and I imagine the average peasant wouldn't have known the difference yeah no they wouldn't but I mean I know, I know that she was a sort of celebrity anyway because she was related to Geoffrey Chaucer who was famous in his own lifetime but it's, it's that nobility thing, isn't it? It's the fact that she'd gone from, as you say, sort of technically a commoner to a duchess who could stand in for the queen mm. within a couple of generations just wasn't the sort of thing that happened in Middle Ages England. Like, she did very, very well. That Chaucer was someone who served the king, who was known to the king, but was not nobility or aristocracy. Mm. It was just like a good poet. Mm. And even, even the son being Speaker of the House of Commons sounds impressive, but this is a time when Parliament doesn't run the country. The king does. So, you know, his daughter coming along and then doing this, as you say, just being like a heartbeat away from the monarchy is extraordinary. And her husband had a similar problem too, William Delapole, although he had technically been elevated to the nobility. I think his grandfather had been a merchant, so he was looked down upon by all of the other all of the other dukes, all of the other dukes bullied him, <laughs> which actually in the end kind of proved to be his undoing. I mean, he fell foul of the court for other reasons as well. He happened to have been captured by Joan of Arc, actually, during one of the 
multiple campaigns of English and versus French. But he took back with him when he was finally released the idea that actually we should bring this Hundred Years' War to a close and advocated for peace. And that was really unpopular with the more uh, kind of hawkish elements of the court. And it was that that led to him ultimately falling out of favour. Yeah, he was accused by the commons of treason charges, which included plotting with the French and attempting to put his own son on the throne. And his mate, Henry VI, was like, I can't help you out of this. So after he was imprisoned in the tower, he said, go off on a boat, you'll be fine. (laughs) And if you couldn't guess, he was not fine. The boat had no sooner left the White Cliffs of Dover when it was intercepted by a rival vessel. And he was greeted with the ominous words, welcome traitor. He was given a mock trial on board the ship and he was beheaded. It took six strokes. You know, it wasn't a very professional operation. And his headless body was left on the shore. So that leaves poor Alice, age 46, with a young son and thrice widowed. But good news for her, she had married well again (laughs) and she got all the money. At this time, she was in possession of property in 22 counties, six London houses and five castles. And she started commissioning statues of herself. Uh, one of which you can still see at Uelm, which is her monument. There are various statues of her all over the place, including a space for her to reside at the tomb of husband number two, the Earl of Salisbury. He, he said, I'll lie on one side and Alice can come on the other. But, I mean, he hadn't predicted the third husband and subsequent three decades. Um, so she never did do that. I understand that impulse of wanting to get lots of statues of yourself because I've long thought that it'd be really cool to just buy very small plots of land and bury statues of myself in them to confuse future archaeologists to make them go well the 21st century was notable for many things but it was also there was this guy that we just can't place in the history books but there are statues of him everywhere well that's very naive i mean they'll have this podcast referred to they'll they'll understand why someone would be commemorating you in a statue area but that's a very bizarre thing to have thought about in depth and over many years tomorrow This was before he'd invented the leotard, of which more later. But what he had invented... Love the show? Support the show! Patreon.com slash Retrospectors! Part of the ACAST Creator Network.